0: First
1: person to use that term was Pete Townsend in the '60s, when he was talking about the whose latest single pictures of Lily. Ooh,
2: I used to wake up in the morning, I'd always feel so bad. I got so sick of having night sleepless nights. I went until my dad. I sit will hear some little somethings I Stuck them on my wall And now my nights ain't quite so lonely
1: So uh, that's where it originated, and then somebody picked it up, and uh, you know, 12 or 15 years later to describe uh, bands like The Knack and uh, retroactively, uh, I guess, Badfinger and The Raspberries and so on. I think power pop is a pretty narrow term,
2: mm-hmm.
1: a narrow uh, category, you know, and what I do is uh, a lot more than that. and it always has been, but uh, but I can see how people would want to, you know, put you
0: in that that pigeonhole as an identifying mark you know so What do you think of that term, power pop? I, I don't like it personally. Um, I believe it was invented by, I believe it was coined by Pete Townsend uh, around about 1965 or six, around the time of, I don't know, Pictures of Lily or something like that. And he he termed this power pop and I suppose it went with that whole image of him windmilling his arm, you know, and smashing his guitar and all that um, brilliant stuff The Who did. Uh, and then it was kind of picked up, wasn't it, by somebody, uh, one of those sort of magazines like Trouser Press, or one of those magazines started, maybe it wasn't Trouser it Press. It was Bop magazine, actually, and Greg Shaw. Bomp, yeah. uh, Greg, Greg Shaw, that's the guy I was trying to think of his name. Yeah. Greg Shaw, uh, he, he power pop. I, I didn't like it because um, it's kind of like an apology. It's it's like, you know, oh, I see before this pop lacked power, you know, so if it's not power pop, what is it? Is it weak pop? You know, yeah, is it right. you know, it's, it's ridiculous phrase, really. But the thing about it is it communicates, doesn't it? It's a signal that communicates to people broadly what to expect it's like if jazz wasn't called jazz if it was called one day it was called i don't know southern double bass music and the next day it was called rasmataz or something there would be you know it needs a everything needs a handle to grow an audience so i guess the term power pop did help to grow this you know considerable groundswell of fandom there seems to be out there for music of that era and uh, still quite a lot of very devoted followers of it, which I'm very thankful for. Um, but I don't particularly personally like it <laughs> as, a, as a phrase, but it does a job, doesn't it? That's the thing.
3: Thank you very much. Hello. Uh, we would like to sing a song now, which was a record for us, and it was our first hit in England.
2: And this is- in England, way back in England, and uh, this song was released in America. It didn't do anything. But it was released later again, and uh, well, it's doing something, you know. So this, yeah, it is. So,
3: so we'd like to play for you now a song called "Please Please Me."
1: It's a broad term. Uh, to me, you know, early Beatles stuff is Power Pop. The, um, you know, Please Please Me, to me, one of the great Power Pop songs. But then it goes all the way on through time up to uh, the present. I mean, to me, Power Pop encompasses everything from the Beatles to Cheap Trick to, you know, the, the Raspberries the ABBA. I mean, there's, there's so many... You know, different parts of power pop. Um, I think one of the main things to me is obviously
3: the vocals. I, when, when the term power pop encompasses a very wide spectrum.
1: Oh, oh Boy with Buddy Holland
2: and his crickets. Oh, my Lord All of my kisses You don't know what you've been I'm missing, oh boy When you're with me Oh boy I thought the world could say that you The world for me All of my life I've been waiting And I shall be no hesitating Oh boy When you're with me Oh boy I thought the world could say that you Wermans call me Stars appear and shadows of power. You can hear my heart a callin' a little bit of it, makes everything right. I'm gonna see my baby tonight, my heart. Oh my love, all of my kids. You don't know what you've been amitting a war. When you're with me, oh boy. I thought the world can say that you a
0: vermin
4: call me. So on the very first episode of Rock and Or Roll back in twenty thirteen. I presented an overview of Power Pop using a 1978 issue of Bomp Magazine as a guide. With this next series of episodes, I plan on delving a bit deeper into the development of the genre, and we will learn about some of my favorite Power Pop records. Along the way, we will hear many interviews that I have conducted with the guys who made those records. There's no denying that Buddy Holly was inspired by Elvis Presley. Buddy was playing bluegrass music in Texas until he heard Elvis. There was clearly something different in Elvis's amalgamation of rhythm and blues and what was called at the time hillbilly music. Elvis hastened the tempo, up the energy, brightened the melodies. Buddy Holly absorbed these influences but unlike Elvis, Buddy wanted to write his own songs not just put his own stamp on other people's songs. Buddy Holly opened for Elvis three times in 1955, and he played on the same bill with Bill Haley and his Comets that same year. Buddy realized that he had found his calling and he formed a band called the Crickets. The Crickets became the template for the Beatles right down to inspiring the name. The Crickets released an album in 1957. The first song, Oh Boy, was written by another songwriter from Lubbock, Sonny West. Sonny also wrote Rave On. I believe we can draw a direct line between those two songs and what came to be called power-pop in the late 70s. The Crickets were making revolutionary music at the time. Their first album also included two classics written by Buddy Holly himself, Not Fade Away and That'll Be The Day.
1: Now I'm going to have those drums left right there because now coming out here, four citizens of the sovereign state of Texas, and they tell me that we'll behave up here in the North. Over Christmas, Texas going to permit us to get back in the union. Is that right, fellas? Here from Lubbock, Texas, they're crickets with one of their hit records.
2: Well, that'll be the day when you say goodbye, yeah. That'll be the day when you make me cry, you say you're going to leave. You know it's a lie, cause that'll be the day.
4: These are special songs, distinct in their simplicity. The impact is direct and visceral. Rock and roll. Power pop. Another songwriter from West Texas, Bobby Fuller, had a hit single with a song written by the Cricket's guitar player, Sonny Curtis, called I Fought the Law. But Bobby Fuller also wrote his own songs. Some of them are brilliant early examples of power pop, like Another Sad and Lonely Night. Then came the Beatles, who revolutionized that song structure pioneered by the likes of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and Bobby Fuller, short, immediate, contagious, addictive. Come on, let's go. Beatles songs were saturated with melody, injected with adrenaline, straight to the bloodstream, or sometimes a pretty hypnotic lament. Either way, you're almost forced to sing along. The Beatles were a band, the sum of its parts, without a leader out front like Buddy Holly. The Beatles were four distinct personalities, unique and individual, but when combined, a creative force unto themselves. Beatlemania was more than a phenomenon. Everything changed. Forever. Bands. Bands. Thousands of bands. Millions of bands. Rock and roll became ubiquitous, all-encompassing. And out of the Beatles came the British Invasion. Bands like the Kinks and the Who. I don't mind the dancing
2: with my girl and span i know i'm a pretty way but i know sometimes i'm losing all my life better be for behind the kids are all right the
4: kids are all right the british invasion that came in the wake of the beatles gave us bands like the searchers The Dave Clark Five. The Hollies. (laughs) Badfinger were the first band signed to the Beatles' record label, Apple. Badfinger built upon the Beatles' foundation. They became a sort of bridge to the 70s, in my opinion, for a Beatles brand of creative melodicism. Badfinger included an undeniable genius, Pete Ham. Many of his songs transcend any era or genre. Badfinger were extremely influential on the musicians that would popularize power pop, Beginning in the late 70s, Badfinger were the band's band, never hugely famous, but exceedingly admired by their peers, fellow musicians and songwriters. No
2: one knows it, no one knows it, no one knows it, no one knows, no one knows how good I- They no one knows how good I feel when you let it show Keep it coming, keep it low Caress me with your body song Reach it higher with each side Knowing soon that we will fly
4: now let's hear some of an interview I conducted with Bob Jackson who joined Badfinger in 1974 originally replacing Pete Ham who then rejoined the band Jackson was a member of the group for the recording of their final album Head First which went unreleased at the time but it's a great record
2: one two three four You know
5: When were you first aware of Badfinger?
3: When was I first aware? Well, it would have been, I guess, at the time of the hits, you know. Yeah. And, uh, come and get it, no matter what, and all that sort of thing. I was a musician at the time. I was a playing, you know, gigging musician at the time, and I was always very impressed with it. And I was just amazed years later when I came back from... Um, I was in a different band, and I came back from this tour from the, in the States, came back, and I... And I'd left the band also. I didn't have anything to do. And I got a telegram saying, it didn't say Badfinger, by the way. It just said, you know, I we hear you're free. Would you like to audition? Come to Denmark Street, famous street in London, near yeah, Music Street, you know, to play, to have an audition. And I went down not really knowing much about what it was all about. So I was amazed. I was delighted and amazed to find that it was Badfinger or what, who had you know, I had a great respect for anyway. Wow, yeah.
5: <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. And that was because Pete was out of the band for a
3: short time? Yes, when I originally went down for the audition, um, I noticed that there were only three guys and I instantly thought, wait a minute, this this is weird. So it was put to me quite early on that Pete had left and they needed someone else who could write and add harmonies and stuff. And, of course, I think the, the, the choice of a keyboard player, I suppose, was, you know, for them was a sensible one at the time. You know, keyboard player could bring, bring to reality, you know, on stage all the keyboard parts that were always missing from, you know, that had been on the records. Right. So, yeah, it was – I replaced Pete Ham, essentially, for about – a week or ten days or two weeks or whatever it was, until one day Pete turned up at the rehearsal room. There was obviously a bit of an atmosphere because he'd left the band, but nevertheless he listened and he said he thought it sounded great and And they kind of huddled in a corner or went out to the pub or whatever it was, I can't remember now, but um, they left me, I was just sitting in the rehearsal room. But anyway, they obviously had a bit of a conflab about it and um, they, they must have decided... Look, let's give it a go as a five piece, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that, that, that's that's about it, yeah.
5: And so that was after Wish You Were Here had come out?
3: It was, yeah. yeah. In fact, Brian, um, the tour that we then did, we, we did a British tour, and we were basically playing, uh, you know, a lot of stuff to promote that album. And you might be surprised to find, or, or I don't know, maybe you're not, but... Um, might be surprised that we didn't play a single hit on that tour.
5: Wow! Did you play Dennis?
3: Oh, no, we didn't on that tour. Oh. No, no, not on that particular tour.
5: That song is uh, incredible. But we, but,
3: but we played—I can't remember exactly the set list, but yeah. but we certainly played um, set several others. You know, I think we did "Timeless" and which was an older track, of course. But yeah, not a hit though. I mean that was strange to me, right
5: yeah, no, no matter what, no day after day, no yeah,
3: no no, no, not anything
5: <laughs> i I would love to hear you talk about pete ham i'm I'm kind of obsessed with him, I think he was an absolute genius, like one of those people who must have been able to just write an amazing song in five minutes. It seems like you know it seems like uh it could have just poured out of him. I mean, they tell the story of how Wish You Were Here they had to do really fast. And then Head First, you had to do really fast too, right? Like you weren't ready to make That's a record. Wrong. And yet That's he wrong. comes in to... with these songs, yeah. Lay Me yeah, we Down. Yeah, to and...
3: together very, very quickly.
5: Yeah. And yet Pete Ham has amazing songs, I Wish You Were Here and on Head First, that are just uh, unbelievable. So I wonder if you could talk about Pete as a person and as a musician, you know?
3: Yeah, of course. Uh, Pete was, you know, there's no doubt that he was a super talented guy, you know, a master of his instrument, great vocalist. And of course, probably above all that, a fantastic songwriter. And yeah, he did have that ability to, to kind of knock a song together quite quickly. I think he knew the craft. Of, well, he did. He did know the craft of songwriting and didn't just rely on inspiration. You know how to craft something once he got a direction for a song. Yes, yeah, so he, he was he was masterful like that. But you know, personally, uh, you might imagine guys in a band. I mean, I didn't look at him as a kind of you know a genius figure. Right. He just he was just a great guy, a really great guy, very sort of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Non-promotional, slightly shy, really. I mean, he could have a laugh and everything, you know, of course. Yeah, so Pete really was a lovely guy. Um, And I'm not just saying it, but he was one of the nicest guys I've ever met in my life. You know what I mean? He was generous of spirit. I mean, when I joined, they all um, just sort of just treated me as equal. I had an equal say in everything. And I thought that was an amazing Thing you know, and Pete was very uh, encouraging to me. Yeah, I, I went, I went and sort of lived at his house actually for about, well, stopped at his house for about a, a week, yeah, and got quite close with him. So, yeah, he was, you know, hard to fault really, as a person. Perhaps a little bit stubborn at times about certain things, but, uh, but no, a lo- lovely, you know, good friend, lovely, lovely guy.
2: Well,
5: that's a testament to the kind of person he was that he was so kind to you just because, you know, you were the guy that was replacing him. And so, you know, it wouldn't be surprising to hear that he was that he was resentful of you or something like that. You know what I mean? Like that would kind of be a common story you would probably almost expect (laughs) of the guy comes back and he's like, look at this guy thought he was going to replace me, (laughs) you know?
3: Yeah, exactly. But but as I said, he was so giving Pete Pete was in spirit, you know that he he just treated you know he treated me like he'd known me for the last twenty years, sort of thing. And I really warmed to him, and such a loss, you know, I mean uh, yeah. you know you you can tell by his writing that it was kind of limitless, and there was so much more he and we could have done. Um so it really was, you know, a bit bit of a tragedy really.
5: Oh, very much. Yeah, there's even on those Ryko Disc CDs that have come out of his like home recordings, there's just brilliant stuff on there.
3: Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, he had a lot lot, lot of you know, that's sort. Of, well you can tell by the amount the amount of there's two two albums worth and I think there's still more. Right. Um he he just had a lot of those songs in his back pocket you know that he perhaps wouldn't have you know pushed with with bad finger but you know what i mean but he but, but yeah he just he just had loads of it you know loads of them so uh yeah it was very sad that he just got so well we all got so depressed about the business situation that he couldn't see a way forward and um and because of his sensitive nature he he wasn't you know i don't know really he didn't have the fight in him to think i'm not having this you know i'm going to do something about this so he kind of crumbled it's terrible but that's you know that's depression isn't it
5: yeah he was probably prone to that already i mean i see the the dynamic of they had everything going for them you know they had such amazing opportunities and to see it all just squandered because of you know this horrible thief that, that was managing them
3: yeah, yeah. it um well you, you you know he he was told and and believed and be, you know before his death he, he rang up the office in uh, America the management office and he was told not by Polly directly but he was told that there really was no money you know to to look forward to then we went to um we went around various managements in london uh, the four of us and we were trying to get a deal and they were all really interested but they they all kind of said well you get out of that problem and um yeah yeah we'll come back you know when 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 you've got out of it but of course that was so i think pete found himself in a no way forward situation And nothing to look forward to. Right. And also, uh, you know, another side pressure was that, you know, he'd only just bought his first place. He'd been living in a bedsit for years during all those hits on very little money. And he was just buying a place and his girlfriend was just having a baby, you know, due to have a baby. And can you imagine, can you put yourself in his head, you know? Yeah. No, no way out. You know, no way forward. Terrible.
5: I could definitely imagine what he was going through and where the despair came from. You could definitely understand.
3: Awful.
5: Yeah. No. It's it's one of the saddest stories. It's really, and it's so um, it's so infuriating. You know. Too,
3: yeah. Oh, t- t- tell time. me. Yeah, of course. <laughs> tell me. Do you know? Even now, all these year, decades later, this goes on you know there's this the bad finger injustices which still go on actually i don't want to go too deep into it but the whole thing it's never left me you know it comes up every day more or less every day in my house mm. yeah yeah but anyway at that time you, you couldn't see a way forward you're right i mean it's it's got to be one of the most tragic you know saddest cases around such a a talented guy a talented band you know yeah yeah it's like i don't know <laughs> it's hard it's hard to kind of convey you know the upset of it really
5: does stan polly have kids or something that are still getting money from Badfinger?
3: um i'm not absolutely sure about that he does have kids yeah. that's for sure yeah but um i'm not sure I'm not sure. After the big court case, yeah, um, you know, yeah. After Pete's death, after Pete's death, just the way you said, it kind of, still comes up. I you was... might imagine we kind of severed all. Yeah, no one, including the estates or myself or anyone, just no one wanted to get go anywhere near Polly.
5: Yeah,
3: you know, even to even just to research him. So I I, I don't have a straight answer to that.
5: So the the. The way I understand it is Wish You Were Here was done very quickly because the label asked for another album or something <clears throat> something like that. And then the, it's the same story with Head First, right? Like the band wasn't necessarily ready to make a record, but the label wanted you to make an album. Is that how it happened?
3: Well, that's kind of only partially true. Uh, the The real push was from our management, Polly, Mm. you know, Badfinger Incorporated. It was him who was pushing the agenda because he knew that every time an album was handed in, he'd get a big fat advance. Right. So it wasn't really the record company. In in fact, to be really candid with you, Warners were getting a little bit tired because the band had had a couple of uh, albums out on Warners, no hits, and um, blah, blah, blah. So they were getting to that point of like we're paying a lot of money here and we're not getting any big successes out of it. So it was, it was our manager who was pushing for that timeline, you know, that, that, you know, go on, get in that studio, you know, do anything, but just, just do something. Cause you know, that'll bring the money in. And, and of course, bring the money into him. It never came out. Yeah. It was just paid into the corporation, which he controlled.
5: Yeah, well there was already the issue with they pulled wish you were here from the shelves because the money had disappeared right from the advance and
3: uh y- yes I think that's right I-, I thought they did it after head foot fir- head first um but you know had already been recorded but you might be right it might have been just before uh, right. just before the re- recording of head first but yes it was about Money in an in an escrow account, a goodwill account, set up by the record company between that and the you know and the management, and yeah, I think I think what happened, in fact, I'm fairly sure what happened, is that uh, Polly's smelling this uh, hint that you know of like mm, you know, Warner's aren't so interested anymore. They're getting a bit a bit fidgety. Um, He just took money, took the money while it was there. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So, so he was the one who directed all of that. Yeah. And and we were just like the you know, (laughs) we were the underlings. You know. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds crazy, but you know, get in there and do that job in you know in next to no time. Okay, you know. It was mad, really. Mind you, I'm, I'm I'm delighted that we did it. Of course fantastic experience and i think we produced some good work you know but but yeah in terms of time scale it was uh you, you were on the clock kind of thing you know you had to get it done
5: no i really like headfirst and i think you could the the direction the band was going in with wish you were here and Head First was a great direction like it seems like there were great things to come if they had yeah. just been able to keep doing what they were doing and progressing.
3: Yeah, I agree. I mean, the songs, not just the songs, but but the arrangements too were getting more, yeah that little bit more sophisticated. So yeah, I, you know, I I believed it. I mean, I loved that album, uh, Wish You Were Here as well. And, you know, before I joined, I, I, I heard Dan, it was fantastic. I th- I felt we were on, well, we all felt we were on the right track forward. And it was really, as I say, it was really the manager just panicking and pulling the money from the account. That was like the house of cards. You know, once he did that, the whole thing fell down.
5: Yeah, a song like Keep Believing that Pete pulls out for, for head first is... T- as good as anything else he wrote, I think it's it's so brilliant. And oh so, yeah, yeah. I mean, if if he could have just kept going, and kept making records like that, songs like that. You know, yeah. the like no one knows. And Dennis from Wish You Were Here are just. I mean, he was doing his best work. And you know. Yeah, he
3: he was really yeah. 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 Yes, he progressed as a writer over the many years. You know. Yeah and, and and I think when we you know doing head first uh you know all the harmony thing fell into place you know we 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 didn't have to really work too much at that we slotted in pretty quick or well, I slotted in pretty quick to what they were already doing Yeah so like, yeah as you, as you say if only you could have you know yeah. held on Yeah a song like past
5: fast I think you wrote that with Tom right
3: Yeah that's right Yeah, yeah. that's
5: a great song and that's definitely kind of going in a more like you say bigger arrangements kind of direction like more interesting arrangement yeah. i guess
3: and 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 sort of uh you know a little heavy without yeah being full blown heavy but it was heavier you know it had a it had a bit of grit you know i, I think that's what what was happening with the band when when we rehearsed and played? There was that bit more grit there in the songwriting. I'm talking about as well as the playing. But yeah, well, thank you for that. I'm pleased you enjoyed that.
5: Yeah, well, and Turn Around is probably the heaviest song on there. You wrote that, right? And that's that's a, yeah, yeah like yeah. you're saying, that's a heavier, but I like that direction for the band. I like that, uh, mixing that in there. It's a very yeah. cool record. It's too bad it didn't come out at the time.
3: Yes, it was, and, and the fight to get it out took years, as you, as you know. I mean, yeah. it did surface ultimately. Uh, I had to lead... You know, I got all the business end of that together. Um, and it was very complex to negotiate that I'm trying to make too much of it. But yeah, I mean, all those years, it, it just sat there.
5: Is the cover with the lion, is that what it would have been if it came out on Warner Brothers? Uh, it
3: it, w- it would have had a lion on the cover, mm-hmm. but it might not have been that lion. Right. Um, there was plans. Tom and I had talked about it a lot. And it was this idea of putting your head in the lion's mouth, you know. So it was always going to be a lion, but I, I couldn't trace the original, you know, whatever was done. I don't, I'm not sure. I think there was, I think there was a sort of thing done, but um, I didn't really, I didn't have access to it. So I, you know, I had to improvise as far as the cover goes, but it, it fulfilled the brief, you know, of, uh, head first, you know, into the lion's (laughs) mouth.
5: So after Pete's death, the band just kind of parted ways. Was there, or did you try to continue at all without him?
3: No, we didn't. Yeah. Um, We were all deeply depressed. Yeah. I mean, like Pete, we we hadn't been, you know, none of us had been getting any money, and none of us could see a way forward. And and Pete dying. So we were all in a state of shock. So we all kind of agreed, the three of us agreed that um, we couldn't really carry on. It it just wasn't, we couldn't. And I think the next six months or so was just, Mike went back to Wales, you know. I, I came back to where I live in Coventry. And we all just put our heads down and. Just tried to get over the shock of it and the horror of it. So, no, there was no direction of getting it, you know, let's, never mind, let's get on with it, you know, let's get it back together. No, mm-hmm. definitely not. We just weren't in that frame of mind.
5: But then you linked back up with Tom. Did you form the Dodgers together with Tom, or it was it kind of a thing where the band came together and then Tom ended up joining?
3: No, uh, Tom and I kind of you know we came in together what what happened was we were put in contact with john john wilson who had had a band called the rockets i think that band had split up so you know we'd heard he was a songwriter and singer so we thought well you know it could work and we met i think we first met at island records i think we went down to island i think someone in the island had kind of put us together you know and we met and kind of talked it over and blah blah blah. I think it took a a week or something to decide. But in the end, we thought, well, yeah, let's let's give this a go. So Tom and I came together, yeah, as a as a package sort of thing. Right. Yeah.
5: So I have those singles that you did where when Tom was still in the band, and yeah, it's great stuff, and it's it's uh it's sticking with kind of the Badfinger sound it's it's pretty similar um
3: yeah it's got elements yeah yeah and, and tommy tommy you know tommy was a fantastic writer as well yeah. I, would, I would never take anything away from him he like pete had had it you know
5: but by the time you make the record uh tom's not in the band anymore
3: yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I really wasn't happy about it yeah really, I was really upset about it, but I was sort of told that he's gotta go. this was a management decision, mm. and the management convinced the other guys in the band, but they didn't convince me, but I was left with a terrible choice that the, the you' have you you know you've done some tracks toward the album well. We're either going to pull the album or, you know, you either stay with it sort of thing and do our bidding and get rid of Tommy or all that work's lost and there's no way, there's no future in it. That's That's what was presented to us. And I remember Tommy coming. We went to a pub and had the meeting, you know, and I was very quiet. I didn't know what to say. I felt embarrassed. I let the I let the other two do the talking. I was just terribly embarrassed, and Tom was plainly upset about it and walked out. You know, after being told that it, that was it. You know, he was gone, and from that moment onwards, I I continued to feel awful because I hadn't stuck up for him. Well, I had stuck up for him. That's not true. I had stuck up for him, but I was voted down. You know. So it was a very difficult thing. You know, if I'd have really supported Tom, I suppose I should have left left the band too.
5: Mm, yeah, but that's, um, a, that's a pretty difficult It was, difficult a, diff, it was a difficult choice, you know, because
3: yeah. obviously I was getting some money from that.
5: Yeah.
3: Um, so I'd have been walking out of my job. It was difficult.
5: So Tom was, so- was clashing with the management, I guess?
3: Yeah, they didn't. No, yeah, no, this doesn't really make sense because... Who on paper had the most credibility of any of us in that band, Tommy Evans? Yeah. You know, yeah, he was from a name band, proven songwriter. You know, without you, you know, all that, all that sort of background of history. But that he didn't gel in the same way that I didn't gel with the management. I'll, I'll just jump forward here and say that it didn't take too long beco- before I too was pushed out by that management. Because I started speaking up more and blah blah. So the same thing happened to me. Yeah. It's happened to Tommy earlier. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a management decision. They felt Tommy wasn't right. He wasn't kind of uh, the right kind of guy for this band. Yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. It was ridiculous since the lease.
5: I guess it's another example of how unfairly Badfinger have been treated to To think that to the management, even being able to say, you know, hey, we got a guy from Badfinger in this band that wasn't really enough. That wasn't really yeah. enough of a also, selling point. Also, the
3: guys who ran the band were 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 quite young. There were t- there was three of them, and uh, they were quite young. And I think to them, maybe Badfinger didn't hold that. Yeah, that aura, you know, that reputation. But they were taking over, trying to push us into a. Being more like, I can remember him saying, you know, well, we'd like something more like Foreigner. And mm-hmm. I remember saying in in a very angry meeting, well, if you want Foreigner, why don't you go and get Foreigner? You know, I did the Lennon thing of, you know, you count the percentages and, and we'll do the music. Thanks very much. And that that was the beginning, the end for me.
5: Yeah, it seems like uh, the album is pretty is is different from the singles. Kind of a more commercial, kind of production.
3: Yeah, I mean the, the early stuff we did, of course, was with M- Muff Winwood, Stevie Winwood's brother, mm-hmm. um, and they had a, a sound that was more. The records had more a sound more in keeping with the with that era. I think, I think the management and the producer they got in we're trying to clean all that up if you, if you want get away from anything too heavy, you know, keep it clean cut. Yeah.
5: (laughs) Yeah. It's weird that the the Dodgers album uh, doesn't really, it's not quite a power pop album because it's more, it's got more, I guess, just straight pop elements to the production.
3: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, 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 John, um, you know, who's a talented guy in his own right. He tended to write more of the the sweeter, commercial. He took that kind of approach, whereas Tom and I were trying to say say something with the lyrics and 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 the music. But yes, that the material combined with the direction of the production, yeah, it it just it was a little bit saccharine. You know, I mean, it's not a bad result, but it was, it, yeah, a bit sweet, you know.
5: You could just tell, especially hearing the singles and then hearing the record. You can tell that there was everybody wasn't on the same page, <laughs> kind of thing.
3: No, exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, we'd gone from the thing with using Muff. You know, we were quite sort of happy in that little team, but but that stopped when we left. Um, we left Ireland. And uh, one of the managers actually of the group used to was working at Ireland. He, he took us with him, and of course that's when he set up an or that they set up another deal for for us and themselves, and they took control, you know so yes, yeah, see I'm not surprised you can notice a you know a definite delineation between singles and, and the album. yeah, it was quite marked
5: yeah, definitely. And it's too bad, because, you know, if the if the record was more like the singles, it could have been something great, you know? And if Tom was still in the band, too,
3: but oh well. Well, oh, of course. <laughs> no, you're right, though, yeah. yeah. Yeah, if both those things would have carried on, again, I think we uh, we could have achieved great things, you know? But uh, as usual, the dreaded management came into play. <laughs> Right. everything.
5: Right. Yeah, I mean I I was raving about Pete Ham, but of course also I'm a I'm a huge fan of Tom Evans. He was also incredibly talented. What was he like as a person?
3: Yeah, d- uh, different to Pete. Um lovely guy, very quiet normally. And I I guess his general persona was like quite withdrawn, you know. He wasn't the greatest one to make conversation or that sort of thing. He was caught up in his own thoughts an awful lot of the time. Um, But, you know, in in a band context, you know, when we'd been to the pub and had a couple of drinks, I mean, he could be the life and soul. He could go completely the opposite way, Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, you know, and be the clown for for the evening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, a a good person like Pete, good person who just the pressures of of everything just was getting him down constantly, you know? And of course that got worse and worse and worse. And when he too thought that maybe he wouldn't get any money because of the disagreements within the group. Yeah. He, he, he did the same thing, you know, as Pete, but again, he, he was, you know, he was a lovely guy. We were great friends, you know, we worked together a lot. We all shared rooms. We, um, yeah, it was a big, big loss to me. Big loss to me.
5: Yeah, Badfinger might have been the first band that ever had the two competing versions. <laughs> that was yeah, I know.
3: Crazy. Yeah, it's like something out of a comic book or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that was crazy. We, you know, we went. Me and Tom. And Mike, you know, we we kind of we were asked to do this tour in America. and We did it. We we actually. Uh, well, I say we. I think Tommy. Tommy told me he invited Joey to to join, but Joe, you know, rejoin, because of course he'd left all those years earlier after Headfirst. But um, but but Joey wasn't interested, so that was that. So w- we carried on, and then in no time at all, Joey had his own band up and running.
5: Yeah. Yeah, I have that. I have. I've read the book, and so. <laughs>
3: right yeah so you you probably yeah yeah the right.
5: whole story um yeah yeah like you messaged me that you were in milwaukee that's i mean that's just a i, I know that there's that television show there's that local milwaukee television show i think that's on youtube yeah. <laughs> that yeah. yeah what a weird
3: what, To loose to loose no neck yeah the guy. <laughs> yeah yeah he was just a car you know he was a character yeah, I mean, it was so low key; it was ridiculous. But th- the the new manager we had in Milwaukee, he he invited us all over with promises of uh, <laughs> promises of money and fame and a gain, you know, all this sort of thing. But when we got there, there was nothing. He, I think he had two, three gigs in the book, and they were just like bars. And he put us on that TV thing. Yeah. And you can imagine within only a few days, Tommy and I, I mean, Mike just went, got up and went back home because he, when when I say home, I mean, he he was with an American girl. And so he he just went off to Detroit and stopped there. But me and Tom, we, we couldn't go back home. So we started on constant arguments with uh, this guy this manager and this lasted this situation this standoff lasted for about sixteen weeks <laughs> with no work starving we were we were literally dependent on the kindness of strangers you know we really were it's quite a story isn't it
5: <laughs> yeah it really is it really is I love the song that you wrote for Pete is it called I Won't Forget You
3: yeah they, that's that's mine yeah
5: yeah that's a, there's a live version of that on YouTube I really like that
3: oh good good yeah it kind of just summed up yeah it just summed up how I felt about it yeah, yeah. I
2: believe
5: So you you have, you're keeping the bad finger name alive now, right?
3: I, I am. Yeah, over the last 4 years, 5 years maybe. Uh what happened there was that I'd felt very um disenfranchised by Joey because after Tommy's death, again Mike and Mike and I were there, now in control of the band, of course, and we were asked to do another tour in America and we, oh, we, I remember saying to the guy, look, I don't know whether I'm ready for this. We just lost a second guy. I, I don't know. You know, I'm really not sure. And where are we going to get players from? And, you know, blah. and this guy said, well, look, you know, uh, why don't we, why don't you get Joey Mullen back in? And I was really hesitant about it because he'd let the band down at the most important time after not getting on with Pete and, you know, after Head First, he just, uh, he, he, not, not after Head First, sorry, after the tour before Head First, he just left. Yeah. And he, him and Pete had their differences. So, So the idea of getting him back in, I had to think a little bit about that. But, you know, we invited him back in and he came back in and we worked together and we did a good show, I think. But it wasn't long before he... he you essentially elbowed me and then Mike out that was the thanks I got you know so yeah so anyway moving up to, <laughs> I'm backtracking moving up to the current time it had been suggested to me for years that I should do but the, the bad finger again or do put my version on the on the, on the road and I was with this band called the fortunes who I was earning a regular living with so Trying to run two bands at the same time wasn't was very difficult, you might imagine. But in time I talked to the families, I talked to um Peter's daughter and and Marianne, you know, Tommy's missus and in the end I thought, well, yeah, you know, I, I really I feel unfairly dismissed from this band. I never left it. And I've I've been through all the worst times of it. You know, yeah. Joe had all the good times in a short period.
2: <laughs> right.
5: And
3: I've been through through this prot- protracted time. I've just <laughs> I
5: never thought about that, but yeah you, terrible things. You, you, you know? joined the band. Yeah, you joined the band at the worst time.
3: Yeah, yeah. I did, you know, yeah. we were exactly wrong, you know. <laughs> yeah. And 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 then after that Milwaukee affair where the guy sued me and Tom and Mike for a total of $5 million. Yeah, I, nearly,
5: joined, I,
3: I nearly had my house taken away.
5: You joined just in time to experience all of the trauma.
3: <laughs> exactly. I, You know, I really did get the worst end of the deal. Yeah. So then, after, when, if you, if you can put yourself in my shoes, after working through all those years and doing, you know, kind of doing the best Trying to do the right thing, blah blah blah. Get Joey in, and then I get pushed out. So I, I did feel, and I do feel, that that was really dishonorable of him. So yeah, so I thought for, I formed a band here. After a while, I thought, why not? You know, I'll just continue the legacy. I, I had the backing of all the Badfinger friends and family, except Joey, of course. But everyone else. Um, and everyone else is completely uh, off the page with Joey. You know, they don't communicate. There's a lot of bad feeling there. So, yeah, so I, I felt justified, you know, in, in starting starting it up. So, yeah, so that's what happened, yeah.
5: Yeah, I totally support it because obviously Pete and Tom can't do it. And um, I support anything that keeps the legacy going because... To me it's such an important important legacy and anything that keeps the memory alive and keeps the the music that those guys made you know uh yeah. exposes uh y- young people to it new people to it yeah it's uh, it's a good yeah thing. i mean
3: the material the material is too good you know ju- to just just forget uh, yeah. in my mind yeah so I agree. so so for me it really is a mission, you know. You know what I mean. I'm on a kind of campaign. I'm on a. That's how I uh, how I look at it. it. It's not just about. Well, I tell you what. I'll put a bad finger together. I might make a few quid. It really, that really isn't it. It really isn't. And I've been accused, you know, on the internet of well, who are you? You know, why should you do it? Of course, most people don't know the back history.
2: Yeah.
5: Um, and who else is gonna? Who else is going to do it?
3: Well, of course, of course, Joey was doing it, but I didn't feel comfortable leaving it in his hands, really, yeah. because there was a lot of bitterness between Joe and the other guys and and families. So wow. I didn't feel comfortable just leaving it as though, like, you know, well, I've been pushed out. Well, oh, well, I'll have to accept it. No, I didn't. I, I wasn't happy about that. Yeah. So I felt, ju- yeah, I I felt justified. So, so I've you know, yeah, I own the name over here, and um, and we've done shows and they've gone really, really well. I mean, it's the material, really. You know, you play that stuff and play it properly, and uh, it moves people. You know.
5: No, it's it's amazing stuff, and it's only a good thing to keep it alive. So.
3: Yeah. I, I, well, I, that's my belief. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's what I think. These these were all, you know, these were great mates of mine. And yeah, I, I, I feel terrible about the whole, you know, angry and sad at the same time about the whole situation that that went down, you know, from Pete Pete's death onwards.
5: It's so tragic, too, because I kind of think that Tom probably never would have done what he did if Pete hadn't done it first, you know.
3: Yeah, I'm, I, I, I agree. I agree with you all heartedly. There, yeah. I think. I think that that seed of, of, you know, Pete's suicide. You know, doing the ultimate thing. It, it kind of, it suggests, doesn't it, in in someone else's mind, if they're so down and depressed, like, well, that's the thing to, you know, that's the ultimate thing to do when I'm I'm so low. You know, yeah, I'm going to do what Pete did. That that's that's all that's left. Yeah. So I, I I agree with you on that point. I think that's that's a valid point.
5: Yeah, it's like people act like people say, I can't believe this band had two guys that committed suicide. Well, that's why, <laughs> that's why. It's not a coincidence. Yeah, um, it's more of uh, Tom's Tom just kind of compounded the the tragedy that Pete that Pete's death started, I guess, and. They both basically did it for the same reason.
0: And the last thing I see, he said to me, is, I'll see you again. And uh, at five o'clock, his wife gets on the phone to me, and screaming, and Peter's dead, you know. So I went there, and she hadn't phoned the police, and I was, I was that's all I know, you know. Well, i
2: Then I'll let you go And now it's only fair
4: Garage rock and psychedelic rock had burned bright in the late 60s, but soon fizzled, and with the 70s came slower tempos, longer songs, meandering melodies, artsy-fartsiness. But talented artists like Badfinger and Emmett Rhodes stuck to the Beatles' formula and kept that style of music alive. ¶¶ Star, of course, was another band from the early to mid-70s that stands out in retrospect in terms of what was to come. Would you welcome them please, Big Star.
2: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
4: The Raspberries were another early 70s band who carried the torch for the British invasion.
0: When I see the way
2: she looks at him Hurts so bad, you know it's such a sin To see her loving while I just walk on by
4: Todd Rundgren's early band, Naz were an American take on the British invasion. On his 1972 double album, Something Anything, Rundgren included a supreme early example of power pop, a song called Couldn't I Just Tell You. For a 1978 TV appearance, Rundgren introduced the song as part of, quote, the latest musical trend, power pop.
1: It's the latest musical trend is called power pop. They do.
4: Flamin' Groovy Cyril Jordan wrote the revolutionary Shake Some Action in 1972, although it wasn't released until
2: 1976.
1: There's a movie and made in 1958 called None But the Brave. And uh, Tommy Sands says to Clint Walker, I'm ready to shake some action, sir.
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could you possibly explain what the three different songs were and how you combined them together to to create Shake Some Action?
1: Well, those other two uh, parts, those other two songs I was working on, were different sections of of chord structures that I added to Shake Some Action. The, uh, none of those songs were finished. And none of those songs got to the point where I was writing lyrics. Um, I kept working on this section, and then I kept working on and, uh, the, the section of the other song, and I wasn't getting anywhere. And after three months, one day, I put all of those sections together. The intro to Shake Some Action, the uh ding, ding, part, uh the verse section and then the chorus section. You know, we're talking about four or five sections of, of uh chord structures. So those other two songs that would have morphed into into reality, uh they never they never were born really. You know. It was like just an idea uh that got nowhere, and what I what I did was is I took what was left of the idea and added it to shake some action.
4: And it sounds like you really wanted to write like an epic song, like you were really thinking you wanted to write something special like this was going to be important, this one song?
1: Well, you know, Roy and I, I mean, uh, when we started writing together, yeah, we wanted to make money. Yeah, we wanted to get into the charts. But what we wanted to do more than anything was to turn on uh, John Lennon and Paul McCartney, uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. And you know, we wanted to blow their minds. You know what I mean? If we could, if we could get some uh, uh, nods from those guys on our stuff, we knew we were on the right track, you know, and, uh, this, this song, Shake Some Action being the first real song I wrote completely uh, on my own after Roy had left, uh, was, the, was the beginning of that. So the effort for that song was, was a great effort. I, I you know, I got to show everybody that, that I, I, I can come up with something great. And I also, uh, I've got to get into the charts and I've got to come up with something new. So, you know, basically that was the motivator for uh, the way shake some action was was shaped you tore me down is is a is a bigger attempt at uh, British invasion pop I think than uh, shake some action <laughs> You know, uh, "You Turn Me Down is a little bit more classic, so it's a little bit more retro. Uh, Shake, on the other hand, is innovative. Uh, We're not going back in time, we're moving forward in time, as far as the structure of the chords and stuff, and also the approach of
4: how to play it. How much influence did Dave Edmonds have on how that record ended up sounding?
1: Well, Dave didn't even know that uh, he was assigned to produce us. Uh, I had flown to England, and, uh, and uh, Andrew Lauder at uh, United Artists had set up a bunch of interviews, Melody Maker and uh, you know, all these newspaper weekly uh, papers that came out. So they asked me, they so said, what are you doing here? Well, I, you know, when I got to A&R, the ANR office at UA, I asked Edmonds if, if uh, it would be possible for us to work at Rockfield, and he went, oh yeah, no problem. And I said, Do you think we could get Dave Edmonds? And he said, Sure. So, you know, I told these guys, Yeah, we're going to go to Rockfield and Dave Edwards is going to produce. Now, this, I don't find this out until 75 when we go back to Cut Shake. That Dave, that afternoon in April in 72, uh, he got a call from the guy who owns Rockfield, Kingsley Ward. And Kingsley said, Hey, do you know you're supposed to produce this band today? Uh, this American band? And he goes, What? So he showed, you know, he showed up. So the whole thing was a fluke. Now, the reason why I picked Dave Edwards is because in '69, uh, when Roy and I were driving to Lake Tahoe to do a show with the birds and the group Love, it was Love's last show. We heard I Hear You Knocking on the radio on the way up, and we just, me and him, just freaked out. You know, we actually stopped the car, pulled over, and turned the volume up to listen to it, you know. And then later on, I found out it was cut at Rockfield Studios. And when I heard that, I went, Oh wow man maybe Rockfield Studios is like Sun Studios. That it has its own sound like Gold Star Studios right. So for me Rockfield was like the new Sun Record. They had their own sound. Let's go to Rockfield we'll, we'll get that sound that that's on I hear you It, you know.
4: Wait well when you were over there in England that's when the the what they call pub rock when that was really big right? were you were you playing shows with those bands or were you playing those same pubs
1: yeah we played a lot of those pubs, and we became friends with uh nikki lowe and dave robertson and jake Riviera. you know the whole that whole uh english underground uh, pub scene i think we did over 220 shows in england that year we lived there the whole year in 72. so we were playing like all the time we got signed to the nems uh, agency which was brian epstein's agency and our first gig in England is in front of two hundred and fifty thousand people at the Bickershaw Festival. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it was it was it was an amazing leap for us uh, to come from the Bay Area, having been really rejected by the hippie uh, scene here uh, because we wore velvet coats and we just looked too good on stage. And they, you know, you know, in those days, you could actually tell that the audience was getting really uppity and we're we are judging you for all kinds of shit, except the art, uh, and the music, you know? And so, you know, we went to LA, uh, we, uh, we, we, we decided to go do a tour of the U S in 68. We said to ourselves, Hey, look, we're either the worst band that ever happened or or the people in this town are, are, are crazy. And so we toured, uh, the U S hooked up with, uh, Iggy and the Stooges, and the golden earrings and uh, Love Sculpture, Dave Edmonds band, and uh, you know I didn't even realize in '72 when I was working with Dave that we had met in '68 on the road because he was in Love Sculpture at that time. You know, those were those were cloudy days. I mean, we were dropping yeah. a lot of LSD. You know, uh <laughs> I smoked a lot of pot. Uh, <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: you know. I tell members, uh, ex-members of the band now when I see him and when we meet, to not, to not get too pushed out of shape about what happened back then, because we were all so stoned out of our fucking minds. Uh, we really can't be held responsible for, for our actions. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we cut the album in uh, a Teenage Head in uh, 1970 at Christmas, and by the summer of 71, Roy was gone. And I think it was in that summer of 71 when I started working on Shake. Wow. I brought Chris Wilson, right, I brought him into the band right around the end of the summer. And I already had uh, the song arranged and, and finished with two verses. So I gave. I wanted to have a songwriting partner. I always thought the way the Beatles did it was great because you got two guys writing. So you've got some objectivity going on, right? Uh, it's not just all your, your idea. Totally. So I told Chris, I said, listen, I want, I want you to be my songwriting partner. Uh, Chrissy was a, he was a damn good guitar player. And he also was pretty damn smart. And besides that, he, ha- he was able to mimic, uh, anybody from Daffy Duck to little Richard. I mean, you know, Chris is like one of the great mimics of the world, you know? And, uh, so when you know when we were writing songs, you know I'd show him like, uh, let's say I was, I, I was working on "I'll Cry Alone," which is on Shape, and Chris knew immediately where I was coming from. He said, "This is the Rolling Stones in the mid '60s." So he did his Jagger, you know, uh, to that. You know, it was he was a great it was a great tool his talent for the stuff we were doing. I heard the term power pop after shake and action came out. I went, yeah, that that sounds about right. I, I, I think, I think at first I kind of went, eh, you know, I don't know about that. But then after a while, uh, you know, somebody at a, at a show in England came up to me after after the show, we ended the show with shakes and action and the guy was just raving about how powerful, you know, the intro was. And then I began to realize that maybe the term power pop was appropriate. Uh, for that song you know i was i was influenced by the who to make that intro very powerful and to bring a little bit more power into that pretty uh arena of melodies that uh the beatles had created i mean there was there was a movement of that that type of music you know what the beatles had done to all of us players uh in the 60s uh the effect had lasted uh, well into the early 70s, because if you listen to the Raspberries, I came back to America. I didn't know about them. I mean, they weren't getting any airplane in England. So when I came back at the end of 72 and, and found out about the Raspberries, I began to realize that, that we weren't the only band. That ha- we're still still basing our influences on, on the British invasion and what what the British invasion had done. You know, you, you realize when you're a writer back then, you realize that, you know, by by having your influences direct you, uh, you try to copy uh, what these guys did and you try to add your own thing to it. And that and that's basically the approach. You know, we were all trying to blow each other's minds back then, all, all of us groups, and we were all influencing the hell out of each other. You know what I mean? Without without actually even knowing it. Thank you.
4: Meanwhile, down in Memphis, bands like Pre and the Scruffs were busy emulating Big Star, a band that was still little known at the time outside of Memphis. Big Star, on our next episode, we will explore that band's history via interviews I conducted with drummer Jody Stevens and early fans of Big Star John Tiven, who formed the Memphis Band Pre with Tommy Hone in 1975, and Van Duren, who was friendly with the guys in Big Star and hung around Ardent Studios. Pre's 1977 EP and Van Duren's 1978 album, Are You Serious?, are sought-after classics of the power pop genre.
6: I was glancing through a, a rock uh, publication called Zoo World the other day and came across a review of your new album called Radio City. And the guy started off the review by saying, uh, here it is, only January, and you already have the album of the year. You're getting an awful lot of critical acclaim for your, uh, for your new album. It's really good.
0: Yeah, that's uh, nice. I hope it sells. We've had critical acclaim before. <laughs>